Welcome to the Big Ball of Twine Podcast, Episode 9. Talking about a couple things today, some lessons learned. Um, we're going to talk about reactivity and suffering around reactivity. And it's kind of just been a few things I have run around in my head, talking about letting things run around in my head rent-free and how to deal with those things. So welcome aboard. And let's strap in and see where it goes. Today we're going to talk about things I learned in 2021 about suffering and um, ways that I live that I chose to change. And maybe we'll talk about ways I'm still looking to work on. I've spent the better part of 2021 in a divorce. If there's anything that teaches you humble and um, lack of humble, sometimes I have not been very humble. Um, but the year started out with a lot of turmoil around, you know, separating finances. I live in a state where it's not somebody's fault who got who's. Uh, who's at fault in the in the marriage and why it fell apart. It's about dividing up the finances. The person I'm divorcing does not seem to understand that and wants to do punishment. And so spent the better part of the year doing discovery. Um, she was looking for things that she thought I was hiding and I was not. When you're trying to find something that doesn't exist, that search can go on basically forever. And it caused me, and I'm assuming her, a lot of suffering during the year. Well, let me put it another way, because really more realistically is there was suffering through the year. As the year went on, I learned more and more about how to notice that I'm suffering, like actually stopping in the moment and noticing how it feels to suffer, what my mind is doing, and then learning how to back out of that. A prime example of that is I am in a hearing soon, today actually, that I I messed up. I, I don't have a lawyer, and neither does my future ex, so we're doing the best we can, and the best I could do was to make a mistake and not file a piece of paper that was mandatory for today's hearing, and it's too late to file it now. So today I'm going to have to go in there and apologize to the court and to the respondent and ask for another hearing. I have felt for the past year and a half that this could have been done in about three months, and it's been well over almost two years now, I guess. Um, And so I'm pretty frustrated with the delays and now I have created a delay. My actions will delay this hearing for at least two weeks and possibly a month. I'm trying to understand through this process how I suffer. One of the ways I suffer is to um, hear in what I've done fault. It's my fault. I should feel ashamed. 
and guilty and I should in some way punish myself. Or the other option is to just um, gloss over it and just make make light of it and really not take responsibility. When in fact, it is my responsibility. I, I made the mistake. I did not see something that was written down. And then when I tried to clarify that, I got misinformation, which would have been conflicting information had I seen what was written down. But I didn't. I only went with uh, a place that's supposed to help, and they made a mistake. But ultimately, it was up to me to make sure that I did what the court needed, and I did not. Kind of ties into what we're talking about about my my year of learning, I suppose, in that I learned right away. I felt that I was wrong, and I was going to be in trouble. And in my world that would mean I would be abandoned and not be lovable. And so that's a big trigger for me. And over the past year, well, the past five years, but especially the past year, I've really come to terms with that, doing my therapy and uh, EMDR, relearning how to be, um, well, I shouldn't say relearning. I really feel like I never got to learn a lot of these lessons. No one came to me when I was little and said, hey, people mess up. The only thing to do now is make it right in whatever way you can. Instead of, this is going to be a crushing blow to me. And it could have been little things or big things. It didn't really matter. In my little mind, my child mind, it all felt the same. So when this happened, I realized this on Friday. Well, that's funny. I didn't actually really realize it until... Saturday evening, and this is a Monday morning I'm recording this, I didn't realize it until Saturday evening when I finally was able to see the written down part, the typed out part, and that's what the the judge had written. It's just it was obscured in some other language and I didn't see it in there. It It wasn't where I expected it to be, so I missed it, and I started to feel the struggle in my body to want to uh, alleviate the, the suffering in a way that wasn't healthy. And that was to feel shame and to feel like I was bad because I made a mistake. And it was just, I mean, really, it's just a mistake. If my one of my daughters was 10 and made a mistake like this, we would just discuss it and talk about what are the consequences and what can we do to make it right. And so the consequences became obvious. Going to have to delay the next hearing. I am going to, in my mind, look bad in front of the judge and my future ex, which, believe it or not, I still feel some of that trying to do right by her for the wrong reasons, not because there's love there, but because there's, I don't want to look bad. It's about me, which, of course, all of this is about me. There's not one stretch of this is about anybody else. It's all what's been going on in my head. Just like walking now is going on in my head and the rest of the world, I imagine, is going about their day and mornings. I sat down and created a plan. I felt how it felt, and I realized I was starting to create my own suffering by going around and around in circles about it. 
And one of the ways that I have learned not to suffer or to suffer less, one of the ways I have learned how to suffer less is to take action and not, what's the saying, let it live rent free in my, in my brain while I suffer about it. So what is that saying? I let it live rent free in my brain. I don't take care of it. Just lives in the corner, banging away in my in my mind. So I take action now. I have a couple of tools that I use, and they might seem kind of silly, but one of the tools is I often have these ideas and thoughts that I can't in the moment write down. Like say I wake up at three in the morning. And my mind tells me, oh, tomorrow I have to do something. So I have a, a, an Alexa dot that uh, I speak out to. Hey, Alexa, remind me to do X, Y, and Z tomorrow at 8 a.m. And then I can go back to sleep because I have evicted that thought from my brain temporarily, moved it out to a space where I don't have to think about it right now. I've committed to thinking about it later. And that, for me, creates a lot less suffering. And so certainly, at 3 in the morning, it helps me get back to sleep. Whereas in the past, I would let that run around in my head rent-free <laughs> for the next three hours till I got out of bed or whatever time I got up. Or maybe I would get up and write it down, and then I would be wide awake because that would wake me up enough that I would not be able to get back to sleep. So today, I'll take care of that. I wrote down what I need to say to the judge which is a simple request for another hearing and an apology to the court and the judge and to the respondent. Simple, to the point, take responsibility, move on. So I'm not going to have to go to jail. I'm not going to be abandoned. It's just going to delay things. But my reactive suffering mind would have it that I'm going to be abandoned or shamed or treated uh, like a little kid, whether that's a spanking or someone yelling at me or giving me what's worse of all, really, besides being abandoned, which is part of abandonment, is the silent treatment. I don't imagine that the judge is just going to look at me and go, well, let's talk about everybody in the room but this guy. We're going to talk about everybody in the room but Randall. So it's it's kind of silly when you say it out loud, and that's Perhaps the best part of this is I've learned to stop and notice and say those things sometimes out loud, but sometimes just in my head is enough to realize what I'm doing because my mind is solely under my control, even when it's not. Ultimately, what I do, what I think, what I say, what I feel is all under my control. Even the things that feel out of my out of my control, I somehow need to open myself to I contributed to that in some way and take responsibility even if it's a tornado rips through my house and tears my house down is that my responsibility no but how I respond to it is my responsibility so I have to be on top of that that's what's most important is making sure that I notice where my responsibility is because there is always some shred of responsibility, or maybe it's 100% my responsibility. Let's talk a little bit more about 
letting stuff live in your head rent-free. I heard that saying, and or I read it. I have my own version of what that means because it wasn't really explained to me. But to me, what that means is I'm allowing suffering in my head rent-free. I don't do anything with it. I don't work with it. I just let it live there. It reminds me of some items I have on my shelves that one of them I've had since I was, let's see, would have been five or six years old, a cup, a glass tumbler cup. It lives in my house rent-free. just sits on the shelf and it has for, well, let's do the math, 53 years. I don't do anything with it except I notice it occasionally and it gives me kind of a nice feeling. And so I keep it, but it lives in my in my house quite literally rent-free. So if that's what that means to you, um, good for you. Maybe you have a glass tumbler from when you were five or six years old. Um, but to me, uh, that's how I see the term. So the first thing I want to talk about about that is I've been in therapy for about a little over five years now working on some issues. Um, I've had three therapists now. The first one was kind of a, I need one right now, and kind of took what I could get. And he was a good man, but he was not what I needed. So I went to another man who was also very good, but eventually decided it was time to peel back his time and start to retire. And so I needed more time. And I switched to my therapist I have now been with for, I'm not sure, two, two and a half years. And she does EMDR. And to me, EMDR is all about noticing what lives in your head rent free and working on it. So at least if it does live in your head, it's not a three monkeys in a tree banging pots and pans and getting your attention all the time. The Buddhists talk about the monkeys in your head, and I might have mentioned that before, but the monkeys in your head are just the voices and the clacking and the chirping and the banging of pots and pans and all the noise that they make. I have been seeing this therapist again for about two, two and a half years, and she has been a huge help for me to reduce the amount of things living rent-free in my head. The first two times we met, it was to do some some basic ground setting things that would help me be more open to the EMDR, not like emotionally, like I got to believe in it because it's not something you have to believe in. It's just something you, well, you have to, I guess, believe in it enough to try it, but you don't have to believe in it to make it work. It's sort of independent of your belief system. So pretty much my understanding is anybody could do it as long as they're willing to just give it a try and be successful. So on the third visit, we sat down, and I was a little nervous, to tell you the truth. I was a little, uh, not apprehensive, but anxious how this was going to go. We talked for a few minutes about my week, and she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. So we set about doing this, and she said, I want you to pick something that has been in your head that bothers you. Um, and it doesn't have to be a huge thing. It doesn't have to be super traumatic. And I interrupted her and I said, well, there's a thing that I think about almost every day and I would like to do some work on it. I said, okay, let's do that. 
And the incident, the thing, was when I was 12, my brother was 13. Uh, the circumstances of how this happened isn't really important, but it was a moment in time where we had had a fight, verbal fight, not uncommon for us. We were very close come up to that point, but not just, not because of this incident, but it had started to stir um, because we were close in age and my parents moved a lot. We were often each other's friends at school or at home. And this argument got heated and I said something to him that uh, pushed him over the edge and he proceeded to just pummel me, physically pummel me with his fists. Uh, had a huge split lip and my tongue was cut and black eye, if I remember right, and blood all down the front of my clothes. And we ended up back home. And there's actually another part to this, but this is the only part we worked on at the time was the actual uh, physical beating and how that was for me that I had carried that my whole life, basically. So we walked through the process and I followed her instructions and I'm not going to go into the details of how that works. Maybe that's for another time, the actual physical EMDR process, because it is slightly different for everybody. But for me, I just spent the next 35 or 40 minutes following her instructions and, and listening to what was happening in my body and in my head and relaying that and we got all done, and there's a part where you gauge how big, how much energy this thing has. And at the point that we were talking about it to begin with, it was, uh, I think the scale is one out of seven. It was a seven being way, uh, lots of monkeys, <laughs> all the monkeys and all the pots and pans. And when we got done, we got down to a one. We did a little another little process. I got it down to where it felt like kind of like nothing, like I had no real response to the idea of this event. We wrapped it up and I went home and I remember getting home thinking about the process and thinking about this event from when I was younger and thinking and feeling, I would say completely different, but it was, it was a new way of seeing it and it was very it was a little disconcerting. It was very different. It had a, a small level of anxiety, like I wasn't sure how to be in my world the way this was now. And how it felt was, I describe EMDR this way to everybody. And I describe it as once you do the work on something, or I should say once I do the work on something, I often feel like, um, I often feel like you are telling me the story of what happened to me. And I might have a little thought or feeling about it, but mostly I am sort of ambivalent is the best way to put it. I don't have a reaction to it. Certainly not all the monkeys in the pots and pans, but maybe just a rustling of like, oh, I know how that feels or I can understand that, those kinds of things. So it's a little bit like hearing a story that you've never heard before and maybe it 
moves you in some way, but it's not it's not the monkeys in the pots and pans. It's the best way I can describe it. Very, very different feeling. And like I said, it sometimes is a little disconcerting because uh, the way I describe it to my therapist is I feel it, I think it, but there's a, like an empty space there. And my way of thinking in the world is I tend to not like an empty space. <laughs> and I think we've found in science that our brains do not like an empty space, that it must fill up empty space with something. And that's why it's, I think a lot of people think meditation is going to make it so you don't think anything. And that's as far as I'm concerned, and I don't have the neurological understanding or the neuroscience understanding to understand why this is, and I don't really need to, but my experience and my understanding of the world is that humans don't go thoughtless, that there is more still, but there is not thoughtless. And so I don't feel thoughtless after these um, sessions with my therapist. I feel uneasy, not in a bad way, not in a scary way or, or, or a panicky way, just in a way that is different than what I've been experiencing. So in the past two and a half years or so, I have done EMDR most every week and We've knocked down some really large obstacles in my way and made space for other things. And so for 2021, that has been a very big part of my world in creating less suffering and um, removing things from my brain that have lived there rent-free. Another thing I'd like to talk about for 2021 is learning how to be less reactive. And like I've said about thoughts that I don't believe you can be thoughtless, like no thoughts. I don't believe you can be completely unreactive because if a car is coming at you, most people, maybe one person on the planet would be able to just let it slam into them. So at some level, reactivity is a good thing. It keeps us alive. It lets us react to being hungry so we eat, thirsty so we drink. But we're talking about emotional reactivity as it applies to suffering. And emotional reactivity is, I think, the root of all problems in this world. It's not money. It's not some other country. It's not my neighbor, it's me and my reactivity because I'm the only one that creates that stress in my body, no matter what it is. If a car runs into me and I end up um, with severe injuries, how I respond to that, how I react to that will absolutely affect my healing and possibly my ability to live at all. That's an extreme example, but a smaller example might be my roommate, my housemate that I have now does his world the way he does it, and I do my world differently, 
And I know both of us at times have had judgments about each other, the way we do things. And he has found me in my lifetime, of where I'm at in my lifetime, as a much more tolerant person as I would have been 10 years ago when I would have reacted to his ways and and maybe said hurtful things out of my ignorance or ridiculous ideas about things or uninformed ideas about things. So my reactivity to him, my reactivity to him, not his actions, but my reactivity to him is much different than it would have been years ago. And now I'm just, he he says, oh, you're pretty laid back. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you should have known me when, because shit, I've been, I've been known to be quite judgmental in my past. And I know it has cost me lots of things, time, space, energy. It's cost me many things to be judgmental in a way that separates and of course then causes suffering and that's a shame um it, it is what it is but it's a shame i i noticed that in my life pay attention to how that has been as also a form of being a bit different now well i think quite a bit different now so i want to talk i want to talk about reactivity because of the way it causes suffering. So the way reactivity causes suffering is, um, I have a thing that happens and I respond to it without thought or creative thought or possibly any thought at all. I just respond instantly. And like I said, if you're about to get hit by a car, if you're about to get slammed into by a car, it's not a good idea to stop and think about how you're gonna react because probably going to be too late, but I'm talking more about something happening that makes me respond emotionally, and then I respond in a physical way or in an action way, reacting, reactivity, that makes my life maybe not so great, or and and also the people around me not so great. So uh, I think that... The EMDR I have done has helped a lot. Therapy has helped a lot. I have been in a men's group now for many, many years, and that group has helped me a lot because those men hold me accountable to what I say and do and help me to look at why I say and do the things I do. And they're only as good as I let them be. So I want to preface that with any group you're in, whether it's in my case, a men's group or a recovery group or um, any kind of group where you're trusting the people around you or asking for their trust, it's you will only get as much out of that group as you're willing to allow. And it's not up to them to save me or to make me better or to um, force me to do anything, but the key is if I don't bring the thing to them, they cannot hold me in a space where I can do my work because there's nothing for them to know, so they can't help me. And that was an issue, a big, my biggest issue probably in the last 30 years is not being completely, utterly, totally 
naked, honest, so I could work through some issues. I could cause a lot of suffering in my mind about that. I could um, beat myself up, but I'm also of the mindset now that says whatever anybody's doing in that moment is the best they can do. And I'm not making excuses or making light. I'm just saying that was the best I could do at the time because if I could have done better, I would. That allows me to space some softening, as it were, to allow my healing to continue past just uh, the shaming voices in my head that said I should have, should have, should have. And if I had, it would have been different, blah, blah, blah. Down the road I go and the monkey's banging on the pots and pans in my head. And that lives rent-free in my head. Reactivity is sometimes a very dangerous thing. And it can be very harmful. If I'm reacting to something someone says instantly and not considering why I think the thing I think, then I might say things that are horrible to someone or do something or, or not say anything and give someone put on them what I'm thinking. So an example might be my boss says something to me in a way that to me sounds like you're doing a crappy job. And I hear that. And the first thing I want to do is lash out at her and say, you're fucked. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm doing the, this job the way I've done it for years, and you're just uninformed. Or I might just say, okay, and eat it. I might not say anything and eat it. And none of those are good in a sense that they are positive. None of them teach. None of them are constructive in a in, in any real sense of the word, I might listen to that those words again and think, well, first of all, is she right? <laughs> it's possible she's right. And that would open up another set of responses. The other thing might be she's wrong, but maybe I just need to educate her so she can understand the way that, so she can understand the way that this is. Um, the other way to be is to thank her for telling me that and to say, I'll do better and move on. Any one of those is just the, just the space of time of allowing myself to consider what's happening and what I want to do about it softens the moment in such a way as to make it less triggering and less dramatic, and certainly less chance of the reactivity blowing up in my world and blowing up around me in ways that affect other people. Reactivity is, is healthy. There's not a thing wrong with reactivity. It is very much a human, uh, it's like a human institution. Every war has been fought over reactivity. Every disagreement is about reactivity. Every problem between two people is about reactivity, really. Because if we sit long enough with our, our thoughts and feelings about something, I think we would own them and we would come from a space of kindness and not force 
or drama or anger or uh, compulsiveness or disruption. And so reactivity is not a great thing, but it's necessary. So like all things in life, there's a balance to reactivity and reactivity can be very powerful. Sometimes reactivity needs to shut something down that's dangerous. But often, often the shutting down isn't really the best response. It's just the most immediate need. And we need to then come back to that and readdress it. I have a lot of compassion for people who cannot see their own reactivity. I have several people in my life right now who have a lot of reactivity and it causes them a lot of suffering. And I have a really soft spot in my heart for them. Even while they're acting out on their reactivity and being at some level of pain in the ass and at some level um, difficult and making parts of my world difficult, and yet I can see, and yet I'm able to see how that works for them, how that dynamic works for them, and I don't take it personally. And that I want to slow and move into taking things personally because that is, I believe, one of the worst ways we become reactive is we take something that happens or something someone says or, or it could just be something really innocuous and make it about ourselves. So I might hear something someone says and they're talking to someone else and I assume they're talking about me or I think they're talking about me. And then my brain starts to work on that and create a whole drama in my head and I might get angry or frustrated or sad. And then I start to react out of that and do things from this whole long spinning mess instead of not taking things personally and understanding that it has nothing to do with me. Well, certainly not perfect at it. Don't get me wrong. I I have my monkeys in the pots and pans in my head for sure. But I want to say that I'm much better at it. It's one of my 2021 happy places where I have learned to be far less reactive, especially to certain people who I have been very reactive to in the past. My dad is one of them. He can say just about anything and I want to take it personally. I have learned very young to take those things personally so that I could protect myself. Um, Not so much physically from him, but definitely emotionally and also from my mom, who even though she's gone, she passed three years ago, even though she's gone, I still have a reactive spot in me that when my dad says, yeah, your mom this and your mom that, there's a part of me that's reactive to that. Like I want to defend myself or I want to, I want to uh, laugh it off, make, make, make light of it so I don't have to feel it. I still do that, but I slow the world down now more. So when my dad might say, uh, tell a story about when I was younger and that story um, is something I've heard many times from him. And sometimes it's a story he tells in front of other people that I've asked him not to ever tell again. And he doesn't remember that 
we've had that discussion or it doesn't, in my mind, he doesn't care. But it's that's taking it personally. I don't know that he cares or not. Um, I do know that he sometimes forgets and tells the same story over again because of his age. But this has gone on my entire life. It's not a new thing. So I think he just doesn't understand that some things that we say other people don't ever want to hear it again and I'm there are some things he says that I don't ever want to hear again and just doesn't seem to understand that so my reactive spot wants to uh, be angry with him and quite literally wants to shut him down and quiet him and that's never been constructive it's always um, puts a wedge between us not because he's telling the story or wanting to tell the story because sometimes I hear it coming and I'm like wait a minute I don't want to hear that and that puts a wedge between us because I'm taking what he's about to say personally as if it's about me and it's not he's just going to tell a story that makes my brain respond in ways that are uncomfortable for me one of the tools I use is to just take a deep breath, look at him, and see him for the person that he is. See him for the 78-year-old person that he is. He's just being him. And it doesn't matter how many times I've asked him or how many times I have wanted it different, it's going to be this way. Because he is who he is, and I can either accept that and live in that space or I can remove myself. And at this point, my choice is to not be a, a dick about it and chop him off, but to just simply say, Dad, I really don't need to hear this story over again. I've heard it lots of times and it, it's not a story I'm comfortable with. And he almost always gets defensive. I don't know, I just that. And he goes on and on, his arms start waving around and. Like that, just just hear that I don't want to hear the story again. And that can that just be all there is to this? And off he goes, and I watch his reactivity, and I watch his suffering, and I watch his flusteredness and his inability to be whatever it is he thinks he thinks he should be. And I could only be speculating about what he's doing in that moment. I've tried to work with him and help him see what's happening. And he just, I don't know, he's just him. I don't want to make excuses for him or speculate. I just know that we don't get very far. And that's okay. Um, I wish it was different, but it's okay. And so there are things I just I don't talk about or I don't mention. Um, because the reactivity there is sometimes too much for both of us. But in the process of telling you all this, it's... I want to respond to that, that whole story I just told you. And if we were all going to dissect these things out, there would be far less conflict in the world because we would stop being instantly reactive and maybe be more proactive. Come back to the person, come back to the issue and say what, what's honest and true for us and not. And, and, and honest and true and vulnerable because... When I say to my dad, that story hurts, or I don't need to 
share that story anymore because it feels this way. I'm letting down my guard a little bit to hopefully help him understand what that means. And hopefully we can bridge that gap, right? Um, doesn't really work a lot of times, but I'm going to keep trying with him. But it works with other people. Um, and some people it doesn't work at all. You know, I have a person in my life right now that if I said the sky was blue, that person would say it's red and argue it to the death. Again, what they do is up to them and up to me to decide how to respond and react to it. And how I've learned to respond to it is uh, I spend as little time as possible with this person and this person is in my life, so I have to spend some time with this person. It's difficult at times because I do have my own reactivity to certain things and this person seems to know exactly the right thing to say to get me to go spinning off into space and want to be reactive. But the work I've done the last few years, and especially doing the work with EMDR, has pulled that that level of reactivity down much lower to a point where I spend more time seeing this person as a hurt three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum than I do responding out of out of a trigger, an anger trigger, an embarrassment, shame trigger, um, uh, some kind of defensive trigger. So reactivity isn't, like I said, reactivity is not a bad thing. It's quite common. It's how we live our lives. I, I hear a dog bark and I wonder what it's barking about because it might be, I don't know, a threat. Dog might be barking at me and coming at me. I don't know. You know, that's my experience in the world. I got bit by a dog when I was 13, 12 or 13, and that dog did not bark at me. Came whizzing out from the house next to the street and just clamped onto my right knee and wouldn't let go. And so I have some reactivity to that. Maybe that's another small event that I could work on in EMDR and take the energy out of that and make that less um, painful in my body in a way that makes me respond and be reactive to dogs barking. Um, Because, again, taking the dog barking is personal. It's not personal. The dog's just doing its thing. It's whatever, protective or whatever the reason the dog barks. It's not about me. It's about that dog and its need to respond to its environment. So when someone responds to my environment and or the environment around us in a negative way, I am learning to take that uh, and dissect it and understand it before I respond or react in a way that's um, not good for either of us. Now, the flip side of that is it's responding and reacting in ways that are harmful to ourselves. Um, I think that's definitely how addiction turns into a thing. Um, We have maybe a trauma or a long-term trauma, and to deal with that, we turn to drugs and alcohol or sex or uh, eating. It's very common that people turn to eating when they feel stressed. And as a child, we don't know any other tools because we're not adults. We haven't learned how to understand our thoughts yet. It's pretty common for us to 
continue to use the same tool in adulthood that we learned in childhood. And if that tool is an addiction or a compulsive behavior or some kind of tool to not feel the pain or emotions of that moment or those moments, then we're, we're stuck in that loop. And that is a reactive loop that is quite harmful to us or can be anyway. Certainly the ones I mentioned can be very harmful to not just us, but to the people around us. And so when we believe stories in our heads and we let them take room, take up room in our heads rent free without exploring them and understanding them, they become issues. And it's the same with positive things. We might not want to feel a positive thing because we don't understand how to do that. We don't. So we react in a way that is protective and not gracious, maybe, or grateful or thankful or constructive because we maybe feel embarrassed about or ashamed about being joyful. Um, I think that's probably, well, I'll just say in my world, I have seen where joy has been minimal and when joy has been displayed, it has been shut down um, for a lot of reasons. And so in my world, when joy comes to my world, there are challenges around that that I have to work with my reactivity on. And I don't think that's uncommon at all. I think a lot of people struggle with feeling like it's okay to be joyful or happy or something other than suffering deeply. Um, Certainly that was modeled in my world with my mother, my mom. Her default method of approaching the world was from deep suffering and joy was threatening to her. So anytime I expressed joy or fun or let me back up, not any time, but most times I expressed joy or playfulness, it was tainted with her suffering and her inability to feel joy and love and care. And so I learned to be a people pleaser and a caretaker and a denier of my own needs and thoughts and and joy and life. And that has been a lifelong battle for me. Well, it's only been a battle last few years because I didn't really even know what I was doing. It was just the default method at which I approached the world. And now I'm looking at how I approach the world in different ways. Suffering can be all kinds of things, and it is all kinds of things. Reactivity being one of them, and joy, and suffering, and happiness, and pain, all create their own versions of suffering if we no longer take the time to understand it and and care for it and take it in and do the work <clears throat> and do the work it takes to um, not be reactive in a negative way but maybe reactive in some way but just not in a negative way so that's what we have for today thanks for dropping in and uh, we'll catch you next time
Hey, thanks for listening today. Hope you come back. Please uh, select the follow or subscribe button on your way out. And if you have a question or comment you'd like me to know about or answer in a future podcast, send that to bbotpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for dropping in, and we'll see you again soon. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others.